Well, we're on part five. Uh, if you're new to what we're doing, we're, we're taking hot, critical topics that are, you know, essential that are being talked about right now in the public, and we're dealing with them from a biblical worldview. And, and rather than going with what the world is saying about all these things that are swirling so much in media, we're trying to get what's the Bible say. We're trying to get to truth so that our hearts can be plumb lined with the Lord on really, you know, big deal issues. And so, uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the issue of race, the issue of race. And so, uh, let's just take a look at the outline, and uh, I'll just set it up talking about where we are in America a little bit, and then I want to deal with specifically this concept of race, the word race. You know, I think words are important, uh, they matter. And the reason why, of course, we get this, but let's just think it through. Words, they shape our thoughts, and all of our thoughts, they shape our ideologies. And so when we have words that uh, speak something to us, then uh, our, our thought patterns and our ideologies follow based on what our, our definitions are and what words mean to us. And when you have words that are uh, I would say deceptive or untrue, but they become monikers in society, what happens is you have false ideologies that take root in people's hearts and minds. And this concept of race is one of them. And so I'm going I'm to kick over the apple cart this morning, glory to God, and just deal with this head on. And, uh, and hopefully what we'll find this morning is that, you know, some of our mentalities that have formed have been deep-seated things that have been here for generations, but they're not exactly what God thinks. And I think that's some of the hardest things is when you've got something that's nearly habitual in your mind to actually overcome that with the truth of the Word. You've got to let go of the old and receive the, the truth of, of the Word of God. All right, so let's look at the outline. <clears throat> and I just started with the American dilemma. Of course, we understand that uh, since the time of uh, the civil rights movement in America in the 60s, that there's been so much progress made in, in regard to race relations. And, and, you know, leaders like Dr. King and, and so many others uh, during that time, they really took a stand in the face of much, I mean, just difficulty and, and just an onslaught of opposition, but they stood for bringing racial equality to America. And, and, and those men and women and, and so many that stood with them, they really need to be honored and applauded uh, by our generation. And they took so much ground. And, and, and here's the thing, though, though they took so much ground, we, quite, we don't quite understand where we came from, I think, sometimes. So when we think of civil rights, we think of it as this complete deal that's already been done. But I would just propose to you that there's so much more that needs to be done. That we're not, we're not finished, uh, that there's still a lot more ground to, to take, and that there's much more room for racial healing and racial unity in America. And, and you know that. I'm not saying anything uh, eye-opening with that. You understand that in our nation right now, there is a, still a ton of racial tension. Just even in, in recent days within the last year we've seen white nationalists and white supremacists in America become emboldened to hold rallies and public displays and, and you, know, you know, gather people and, and do all these, you know, chants. It makes it sound like we're, we're back, you know, 50 or 100 years. 
And then at the same time, so you've got, you've got you know, white supremacists over here doing their deal. You've got movements on the other side that are saying, hey, this is not okay. And stuff like Black Lives Matter has become a, a, a household term. Everybody knows what that is. And that's an unusual statement of affairs when you're thinking we're 50 years past civil rights. You'd think, man, we'd be, you know, really down the road further and we wouldn't have those those two competing uh, realities in America today, but that's what we've got. We've got that right now. And so, uh, you know, some people want to say, well, we don't really have a, a, a race issue in America. And, and I'd say, well, you know, all you have to do is flip on the news and you know that there is racial tension that makes headlines every day. Now, here's the thing. The guys that, the guys that formulate those headlines, they know what sells, don't they? They know what inflames hearts and minds. They know what gets viewership. So anything that they can put up in front of people to inflame people, they will do it and they'll do it over and over and over again. They're not trying to necessarily, I'm talking about media, they're not trying necessarily to bring us to unity. They're actually trying to just inflame us so that we'll keep watching and get more mad so that we'll watch some more because they happen to get dollars based on viewership. Just a little, little you know, uh, thought there that when they're replaying the same news story that's making you upset, turn it off in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Just turn that thing off. Those guys, are, they're playing on our emotions. They're, try, they're not trying to help us. All right, so even in the last few weeks, we've seen demonstrations uh, obviously, Charlottesville was a horrific demonstration where uh, uh, one, one person lost their life and, and you had this, this whole group of, of white supremacists and KKK folks and they show up and, and, and they're protesting. And then, you know, just even uh, within the last week in St. Louis, I don't know if, if you saw that one, but the city streets were filled again with mass protests because there was a there was a, a, a court case over a, a shooting, a police shooting of a, a white police officer of a black man, and, and the police officer, uh, I don't even know the details, but the police officer was let free, and there was mass protest as a result of it. So this is our context, guys, and, and here's the thing. We can act like that's not happening and all smile on the outside and not deal with the issues, or we can just bring them front and center, talk about it, and work through it, and the church can actually be in a place of strength on this subject instead of tailing behind, which I find what happens is that oftentimes the church is in last place on the most important issues, and you know, it ought not to be that way. It ought not to be that way. We should not be taking our cues from the world. We shouldn't be lagging behind. We shouldn't be always in a reactionary state. Oh no, what are we gonna do? No, we should be living with our hearts so connected to the Lord Jesus that when, when something is going on in society, we're clear on what the Lord's opinion is and what the, the uh, values of the kingdom of God are and so that we can speak with precision right into the fray. I have a dear friend, uh, Jonathan Thomas, who's, who's, you know, we're doing things together in this issue of, of race in, in the church and, and in America, and uh, he, has, he has coined a phrase, civil righteousness. He said, we need a civil righteousness movement in America. We've had civil rights, but now we need civil righteousness. And, and, and Jonathan, I mean, a, a Friday ago, 
I, I, I brought up my Facebook page, and there's Jonathan, and he's broadcasting live in the middle of this protest in St. Louis, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's praying, and right there in the middle of the fray, here he is, this African-American leader, he's calling people to give their lives to Jesus and find healing at the foot of the cross. And I'm like just blown away by him. So he, uh, he shared a story with me. He said that that same day, the crowd was gathered and he said, uh, you know, they, they, would have, they had a bullhorn and then just anybody could grab the bullhorn and just say whatever they wanted. And so you have the guy, you know, the, the, the one guy gets up and he's, he's the Nation of Islam guy and he gonna, he's going to give a five-minute message on Nation of Islam. And then everybody's, you know, saying amen. And then he says, okay, at the end, let's all just raise our hands in solidarity. And there is the Nation of Islam giving leadership where there's a leadership vacuum. And, and then another guy just grabs the bullhorn and they start chanting. And, and they say, you know, uh, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. That goes for a few minutes. Then another guy grabs the bullhorn and he's, he's a little more R-rated and he's blank the police. And he gets the whole crowd chanting blank the police for a couple minutes. And Jonathan's just sitting there watching this and he says, you know what? We have to lead. He grabs the bullhorn. <laughs> and he begins to express the gospel of Jesus, the power of the cross, the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse sinners and set people free. And he says this, he says, the only way we're gonna get justice is through the cross of Jesus. The only way that we're gonna get healing is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he calls the whole place to, to give their lives to Jesus. Immediately after him, another guy grabs the, the, the bullhorn and he's, he's the nation of Islam. He goes, listen, if you believe this blank that this guy just said, he goes, you're just crazy. He goes, I challenge every preacher in St. Louis to come down here and take a stand for this Jesus. He's, he's a, and the guy says he's a false God. And it was this, I mean, it was prophets of Baal versus the prophets of Jehovah standoff. Right there in the middle of the street. You know, this is where the kingdom needs to come. Hello? The church has to take a lead in this stuff. And we need to be in the middle of the fray and not just in the safety of our four walls. And so uh, it's what I said there in E that unfortunately the, the loudest voices on the subject, they, they don't tend to be those that have uh, free hearts. They tend to be those with a political agenda or a financial agenda. And in that situation there in St. Louis, they didn't, they didn't, he said there was, there was no evangelical voice and he thought, man, I can't just let this opportunity go without there being a witness for, for Jesus. And so he stood up for it. And so here's what I think. As I've said, the church has to get precision. We've got to have a prophetic voice. We've got to be clear on the subject. We've got to be uh, open to the, to, the, to the mind of the Lord, allow our own paradigms to shift where they're off. And then we've got to be able to give leadership in this area as it relates to the culture and really see something shift, which is why we're doing what we're doing with one race, uh, it's, which is you know, the movement that is beginning to, to stir up that we're gonna end up with a, our solemn assembly at Stone Mountain. And in a day ahead, I'll share the whole prophetic story to that so that we're all really clear on what the Lord's asked us to do. But our strategy is pretty simple. We're asking pastors and leaders to get together to form groups of, of prayer and discussion Black and white pastors primarily, but all cultures included, 
And from those places of prayer, pastors and leaders joining hands and locking arms, that they would begin to have uh, regional prayer meetings, like the one we had last month and like the one we've got coming up here in October. But we're doing it in multiple places around the city. We have four other groups now that are, that are either started or getting ready to start, where other pastors and leaders are coming together to pray and to see something change in their environments. And what we think is we need 15 or 20 across the city. And then those will end up in regional prayer meetings, and that will end up with us with a solemn assembly next fall. But the solemn assembly isn't the end, it's the beginning. Because what we don't need is one more high five and pep rally, and we talk about race, and everybody washes each other's feet, and then we all go back to our own churches. What we need is a movement that shifts the culture. And so what we think is that the Lord wants to give us a movement that would include three or 400, maybe 500 pastors all across the metro Atlanta who not just preach this and go to the prayer meetings, but they live this way. And you know what we could actually see? I think in Atlanta, we could see the culture completely shift. We could see the power base shift if the church will take the lead. Amen. Can you get a little better amen right there? Just a little bit. Okay. Um, But as of this moment, the status is this, 86% of churches in America are completely segregated, even right now. Thank God that we are breaking that statistic, and we pray for other places to, to begin to break that statistic. So the vision is clear, what God wants is clear, and our challenge is clear. Now... I want to talk about this issue of race, and specifically the concept of race. And and this is a little scientific, a little historical, but just hang with me for a minute, because I think what you're going to find is, as I was saying, words matter, and they shaped our paradigms in certain ways that we don't even recognize. And I've done quite a bit of study on this subject, and I, I don't know why, but maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I started really getting a distaste in my heart for this term race because it just dawned on me we're, we're all humans. There's, there's one human race. Now, that doesn't take away anything from anybody's culture or anybody's ethnicity because I love the fact that God wants every tribe, tongue, people, and nation as a part of the bride of Christ and it's part of his creation as an expression of himself. But this, this concept of race, it was just grabbing me the wrong way, and I, and I didn't know why, so I started studying on it. And so I want to just give you a little bit of the scientific backdrop that actually gave us this term race as a distinguisher, okay? Because I think it will be extremely enlightening. All right, so Roman numeral two, scientific racism, So the concept of race and the use of that term as a classification system emphasizing different skin colors was first used in the 1700s in America. That's the first time that there was a classification system that identified that people with different skin colors were different races. The first first classification was, was four Uh, different groups. The next one was five different groups. And in the second iteration, uh, what you ended up having was not just a geographical 
identification. In other words, uh, this color is from this place, what, uh, uh, or, or this, this group is from this geographical location. It was this group is this color and is from this place. And so they inserted this concept of skin color equals race, 1700s. And so what happened was this, the original scientists that were on this, they weren't thinking in, in particularly supremacist terms, but they, they were trying to categorize, they were studying anthropology, and, and they were trying to identify humans, they were looking at cranial structure, all these different things. And, and so what happens is, within just a matter of a few decades, in the 1800s, this, this concept on race, it grows to include this, this idea of racial variation that... Is, is this theory that humans all had different creation origins. So most people don't realize this, but right there embedded in the original thoughts on race is the concept that if you're white, you're part of a certain creation. If you're black, you're part of a certain creation. If you are uh, Native American, you're part of a different creation. If you're Asian, you're part of a different creation. And that idea gained much traction. Now, there's, if you read the history, there's much debate going on at this time, different scientists on different sides of the equation, but we know that the status in America was this, that many people were in favor of chattel slavery. Now, many were against it. There was a whole massive abolition movement, uh, primarily in the North, but in the South, there was definitely a, a massive movement to... Uh, continue the status quo with chattel slavery. So these concepts, these quote-unquote scientific concepts of race, they became main and plain in America. And so what ends up happening is this, that this classification, they set this hierarchy and they say, okay, if you're Caucasian, you're more educated, you're smarter, and you're to be a ruling class. And if you're, if you're Native American, you're sort of, you know, down, down the pole a little bit. And, and, and if, you're, if you're Mongoloid or Asian, you're, you're kind of down the pole a little bit. But if you're of African origin, you're at the bottom of the barrel. That's what these guys said. Now, as ugly as that is to look at it, we need to consider this. Because this is where the concept of race was forged. And so what ends up happening is this, that this idea becomes the bedrock for white supremacy. It becomes the bedrock as, a, as, a, uh, as an apologetic for why slavery has to happen because certain races are just to be subject to other races. And it ended up forming the foundation for the anti-Semitic thought that Adolf Hitler used in Nazi Germany. And so when you think about white supremacy, when you think about this idea of a superior class of people, it all comes from these scientific ideas in the 1700s, quote unquote scientific ideas. Now, in the early 1900s, W.E.B. DuBose, he's one of the first people to argue that race was not a useful scientific category. And many other scientists were saying that. They're saying this thing that you guys are doing has no science to it at all. You're just... You're just taking this, this political and social stance and you're painting it with scientific language, but it's not, it doesn't have any basis in true science. 
And so what ends up happening is that by the 1950s, the UN puts out a statement and says that the, uh, the concepts of scientific racism were completely all false. So it's, it's as an idea that there's a, a different genetic reality or a different creation, it's basically all discredited by the 1950s. But the problem is this, the term race as an identifier, it stays And so what was born in a completely false uh, environment of, of, of supremacist thinking, the terminology stays in place even though all the ideas are discredited. And so what we do is we use this term race to describe people of different skin tones as if they are part of a different creation. And I wanna say boldly that nothing could be further from the truth. It's a lie and a deception that was seeded deeply into American society that has actually continued, the language of it has continued to this day. And so now what's common is that anthropologists all believe that the idea of racial distinctions are, are understood as a social invention that has no scientific basis. And I, I reference uh, Audrey Smedley, who's, who's a doctor, uh, an anthropologist, and she actually wrote the, uh, an encyclopedia entry on race. And if you Google her, there's a ton of interesting, if you like that, I read those things, I read studies and stuff. But if you like that kind of thing, you can Google her and you can find so much work that's been done on this, this idea of race and how virtually all of the historic mentalities are completely false. Here's why. Scientists in recent days, geneticists have found this, that every human being shares 99.5% of the same DNA as every other human being. We're all of the same creation. If you cut me and you cut my brother David, guess what? We're both gonna bleed red because <laughs> we're both the same. We're bo we both have the same genetics. In fact, the geneticists today have told us this, that when they've tried to find differences in those 5%, they try to figure out what it is, they actually find greater distances in people of the same color than they find between people of different colors. We're all the same, gang. We're one creation. We're one race. Now, that doesn't take away anybody's culture, That doesn't take away anybody's heritage, anybody's ethnicities. We know that all of our backgrounds are different. We know that there's so many different things about how, how you, know, you grew up versus how I grew up or anyone around you grew up. And, and that's not just black and white. And let me just speak a, a, informatively for a minute, and all the black people will get this. But I was having a conversation just, just the other day with one of our uh, night watchers, and she's African-American. And... And we were talking about, quote unquote, black culture. And, and, and I said, you know, the more that I understand it, the more I realize there isn't one broad brush black culture. Because a Nigerian who's been here for one generation and an African American whose family came over, say, in the 1600s or 1700s, they have completely different cultures. 
And a Caribbean who showed up in the last few generations has a completely different, gener- uh, different culture than the Nigerian or the African-American. And as many of the, of the uh, people of color as there are in America, there are different cultural realities for all of them. And, and, and white people go, really? I just thought they were all black. And I just say this, that no... There are so many unique variations, so many differences among us. There's beauty of God in every expression from every nation and every culture and social group. Man, it's not about your skin color. It's about the image of God expressed through so many nationalities. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And so here's our challenge Our challenge is that we've been fed a bill of goods that's not true, and that race as a distinguisher has carried on to today, and that most of us have even just sort of bought into it because it's all we've ever known, and so we say, uh, he's black, he's of that race, he's white, he's of that race, or he's Asian, or he's Hispanic, they're of that race, but none of that's actual. So I've got a couple pictures this is such an intense conversation, I need to lighten our, our, lighten our mood a minute. So I've got a couple pictures. Put either one of them up there first. Anybody know who that is? Colin Powell, former four-star general, I think still is, and former secretary of state. Anybody know what color he is? Well, in America, Colin Powell is understood as being black, right? He's understood as being black. All right, now, let's go to our next person. Now, anybody know who this is? Probably football fans might. That's Mike Tirico. Mike Tirico is the the, uh, the, uh, sportscaster for Monday Night Football for the last 10 years. What color is Mike Tirico? He's white. Yeah, his family's Italian. He's from Queens. And if you ask Mike Tirico, and there, there are interviews out there, he says, I'm white. And he says, my whole family on both sides is all white. He goes, most people think I'm black, but I'm not. I'm an, I'm an Italian kid from Queens. Flip back to Colin Powell again. <laughs> Flip on back to Mike Tirico. I might be off in my color estimations. I think he's darker than the other guy. Is he darker? He's white in America, and the other guy, let me see him again. He's black. Guys, we're, mess- we're mixed up. We're very mixed up. What we think is real is not real. All right? And so what we have to actually do is get past skin color. We've got to get past identifying people as this race or that race. You know, uh, and you can, you can we, we won't want to stare at Colin Powell anymore. Uh, so somebody would say, well, anybody who's half black and half white, they're black. Do you know where that idea comes from? It comes from chattel slavery. 
The reason why is if there was a person who they call it the one drop rule. If they had one drop of black blood in them, then they could be, they, they qualified to be a slave according to these racial concepts. You know what I found out just recently? Because you know there's a lot of these DNA study places. People go online and they, they, I don't know if they send them blood samples or their social security number. I don't know what they send them. But they, they find out their DNA. Y'all, y'all anybody? Ever? So <clears throat> the, there's a, 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 a company that's done a broad sampling of Americans. And they say now that with, with clarity that six million white Americans have at least 1% African DNA. You white people aren't as white as you think you are. <laughs> and we are in an unusual time in human history where there's been so much intermarrying between different cultures and, 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 and peoples of different nations that guess what? The truth of who we are as human beings is becoming so evident to us. You can't be classified by your skin color. We're all the same. That doesn't mean our cultures are different. I don't want to take, don't hear me as saying I'm taking away someone's culture. I am not. I want to emphasize the uniqueness in our diversity, but I want to emphasize also the uniqueness in our creation, that we are all from one common ancestor, a, 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 a man and woman, Adam and Eve. All right, so let's look at this then. Roman numeral three, the biblical concept of race. Let's get our minds around this. The Bible's absolutely clear. It doesn't, it, it doesn't even come close to separating humans according to different races. Acts 17, verse 26 He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. From one blood. And then Genesis 3.20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, I don't know when you think of Adam and Eve what color you think they were. But I would imagine that whatever color you are, you think they were probably pretty close to your color. But I want to tell you something. Adam and Eve had to be some potent people because everything that came out of them came out so many different ways. They were full of spices. They were full of all the colors of the rainbow. My wife and I were talking about this the other day, and I said, I bet most... White people think Adam and Eve were white, and I bet most black people think Adam and Eve were black. And my, my uh, daughter was in the back seat just sort of listening to this, and she just goes, hey, hey, dad, hey, dad. I go, yeah. She goes, am I white or am I black? <laughs> I, said, I said, baby, I think you're more of a peach color. You're peachish. She goes, yeah, that's true. I've never seen a really white, white person. I mean, I've never seen a real white person. <laughs> This is funny. Oh, the mind of a child. It's wonderful. Can you imagine having a kid, seven years old, and she doesn't think of race that way? She just, everybody's everybody. Nobody's this, this group or that group. Again, not taking anybody's distinctions away, but not classifying everybody by their color or by their culture. 
We've got one set of parents, Adam and Eve. That's the only place where the Bible says that we've come from. The concept of race as a, you know, the concept of creation as different creations or unique species within the creation is completely false. The Bible never gives us any hint of that. Uh, It's so absolutely clear that we're all made from that that one common set of ancestors, and from there, the whole beauty of the human uh, sort of gene pool comes out. Now, so what was God's, in God's mind as it relates to our differences? Because I just think, you know, God, wouldn't it have been easier just to make us all the same? Wouldn't it have been easier just to sort of paint us all one color and have one culture, and then you don't got to mess with all these differences? And God says, no, that's not how it is at all. That's not what's in my mind at all. So look at Revelation 5, 9. This is going to be the scene before the throne. When we all get there, we are going to look around. Now, we say this all the time. We go, it's going to, you know, it looks like heaven, like what heaven's going to be. All these different tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And and we say that, but man, I want to just live it. I don't want to just say it. I want to live it. I don't want the first time that, that the church actually experiences each other to be, you know, on the other side. And I'm starting to enjoy the way we look. I think we need a little more spice in here, but we're starting to get there. We're starting to get there. But let's look at what God says about it. He says, uh, in Revelation 5, 9, this is the, the multitude in heaven. They're, they're singing to the Lord of his worth. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, people and nation. Every tribe and tongue, people and nation. So God doesn't use the term race. He didn't say, it doesn't say, heaven's testimony isn't, you redeemed all the different races says, no, no, you redeemed all of humanity from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So that's why we we love diversity. We we love that that there's a a, a vision and a dream in the heart of God that that there's a complete unity uh, among the believers, but there's a, a massive diversity among the expression of who we are. That's how it's supposed to be. And here's the deal. God wanted, the father wanted a bride for his son, and he wanted a bride that would be comparable to the son. So what God does is this. In creation, he makes a a creation that expresses his own image and likeness. And what he needs is a tapestry of seven billion people in creation from every different tribe, tongue, people, and nation to express rightly his myriad beauty and wonder and majesty. And so the reason why we get a bride from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is because that's what's in God. The multifaceted expression of his glory can only be seen through a massive, wonderful human experience of tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. That's what God was doing. That's why God said, let them, let them all be unique. Let them be let them all be different in, in a variety of ways. Let there be so many different cultures and tongues and tribes. Let it, let it all express me, but the whole tapestry together is what I am. And so then that brings me to this. What was Jesus' desire? Look at John 17, and we'll just kind of land the plane here. 
And by the way, I know there is so much that needs to be said and done on this issue of race. I'm tackling this one concept today because this is a conversation that we're going to continue to have over and over and over and over again. And so this just happens to be one that I wanted to knock that, I wanted to knock that concept out in our minds so that we can come a little closer together, so we can have real conversations. Because if you're sitting across the table from somebody and you're thinking, they're completely different than me, they're completely, they don't understand me at all, I'd say you're 99.5% the same. Your histories are vastly different, your cultures are vastly different, but in terms of the creation, God made you very, very similar. There's similar things going on in your heart because you and the person across from you, you're both human, one race. So what's Jesus' desire? John 17, you know the passage, but let's just read it and let's consider it with the thought in mind that 86% of churches are currently segregated today. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, them being the disciples, He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity. And then look at that. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Guys, these are some of the most precious drippings from Jesus' heart. He's getting ready to go to the cross This is in his final moments in his earthly ministry. This is his high priestly prayer where he expresses some of the most, I mean, just deep desires of his own soul. He expresses them to the Father while while he's bearing the weight of the the sins world and the, uh, the, the, the sin of the world in the garden. He's expressing his heart to the Father. And what's he doing? He's praying right into the issue of human divisions. He's praying right into the issue of segregation. It's praying right into the issue of racism. Jesus getting ready to go to the cross understands that in the human experience, one of the greatest challenges will be they will be divided among themselves. So I pray the opposite. I pray they would be united and not just sort of parallel, not sort of just putting up with each other. He goes, I want them to be perfect in unity just as the Father and I are perfect in unity. Beloved, If this is Jesus' desire, we must be about it. We've got to get about it. Now listen, that doesn't mean you get to amen my message and then that equals we're about it. What it means is we all have to be intentional. The answers are really not found just in messages from a pulpit or even in prayer meetings. They're found in life shared together. They're, they're found in the intentionality of relationship, the hard conversations that you have where you, you don't understand something and you, and you look at somebody and you go, could you explain it to me? I had, uh, 
One of our ladies come to me a, a, a few weeks ago and she said, I, I want to tell you something that, that happened in, 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 our, in our house church. I said, yeah. She said, I was talking to, to one of our young men. He's African-American. And, 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 and we were talking and he said, I, you know, I, I'm going to blush. And she said, you know, I just thought about it for a second. And, I th- and she said, how would I know if you were blushing? And she wasn't saying that from a nasty attitude or anything. She said, Could you, can you explain that to me? And it took him back a little bit, like, dang, she really did just go there. Like, really? But they ended up with an hour-long conversation. The hour-long conversation is what we're trying to get to. Because after that hour-long conversation, their relationship, their love, their care for one another had grown exponentially. She was brought into a little bit of understanding. He was gracious and able to speak right to her. Beautiful. That's how it's supposed to go, guys. I'll tell you this one. This one's tough. This one didn't go as beautifully, but it still worked. I was in a pastor's meeting. I was in a pastor's meeting, and this one pastor is just really clear on, real, on the real issues of of racism and, and racial tension in America. He's, he's an African-American, and he's, he's, just, he's just expressing it with just, just clarity. And, and you know, he, there's 10 of us in the room, and everybody's just fixed on this guy, like, man, he's got it, he's got it. The guy next to him is a white pastor, and, and he, I, I, man, right when he said it, I just went, ah, no, stop. But he said, he goes, man, you're really articulate. Uh-huh, you heard some gasps. And some of the white people go, well, what's wrong with that? You don't call a black person articulate with surprise because guess what? They're supposed to be. And in that moment, I went, oh no, because we're having this awesome racial reconciliation pastors group. And I thought, oh, he just blew our whole meeting. <laughs> this, this isn't racial reconciliation. right? And, and the, the African-American pastor was so gracious he goes, now, brother, I need to tell you something. And he just put a hand on him. I went, uh-oh, oh, <laughs> it's about to go down right now. <laughs> he goes, you can't call a black man articulate because I should be. He goes, that comes out of a supremacist mindset. He goes, don't use that term. He goes, I know what you meant. I know that you meant that I'm clear and I'm, I'm speaking precisely to the, t- to the topic he goes, but don't use that terminology because there's a lot that look like me that won't take it so nicely. And in that moment, I thought, man, that's the work of reconciliation. The hard conversation with a gracious attitude, with understanding, with love and forgiveness, willing to go that long route. That's not easy. That's tough. That's hard, right? It would have been so easy for that pastor just to go, hey, uh, you know, just not say anything and walk away and to go, did you hear that white fool? Did you hear what he said? That guy doesn't know. He doesn't want to be. I mean, he could have easily done that. Instead, he stopped the presses. He said, hey, let's do this. Let's get together and let me help you understand something. That doesn't work. And man, the white pastor goes, I am sorry. I didn't know. I didn't mean it that way. I didn't know that that's how it was understood or taken. But man, would you please forgive me? He goes, absolutely. Absolutely. It was precious, guys. This is what the Lord is praying for in John 17, that we would be perfect in unity. 
Guys, we have a massively difficult history that we have to overcome. There are massive issues in society right now that we have to work past. Listen, this doesn't mean everybody's going to be in the same political party. All right? Let's just get along with that, all right? You know, not everybody's going to vote for the same person. That's just not how it's going to go. But what it is going to go is we're going to all realize that we're one in the creation of God and that we are one in our new creation in Christ that our culture above everything else is the culture of the kingdom of God and we've got so many differences and variations and uniquenesses about us that we have a wonderful opportunity to learn and to grow and to experience the myriad beauty of God as we find it in other people. Amen. Amen. This is the job of the church, that we would lead the way in this and that we would ultimately become the dream of the Father for the Son and the dream that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Amen. Amen and amen. All right, let's stand.